Well, that one's terrible. You guys are the worst team I've ever managed. Last year, I managed the Biloxi Shuckers. They won three and lost 159. Compared to you, they were the 61 Yankees. Two seasons ago, I managed the Modesto Nuts. Somehow, they lost more games than we had on the schedule. Still, they were better than you bums. Three years ago, the Wilmington Blue Rocks. They won 10 games and lost 152. The fans set the stadium on fire eight times. But they were class compared to you rotten, stinking losers. Mr. Wolf, do you ever wonder why it is so many teams you manage really stink? I do. I mean, what are the odds, right? The year after I left, the Nuts won the championship. I just feel there's like this, I don't know, this this incredible statistical coincidence that I seem to get all these teams at their low points. Yeah, Mr. Wolf, that must be it. I mean, what other possible explanation could there be? Stop trying to change the subject. I want to talk about this game. You knuckleheads haven't done one thing right all day. Well, how about my stolen base? You stole first base from second, you idiot. I know. They weren't expecting it, right? I confused their defense. Listen to me, you hopeless chump wagons. Baseball is like life. You try to get to first base. After that, second base. And then on to third base. Then you punch the third base coach because he's sleeping with your wife. And then your son tells you he's dropping out of college to become a chicken sexer. And then... (laughs) You know what? Baseball is not... That much like life. Now, halftime's just about over. Get back out there and play hard for the last four and a half innings, and we could still win this thing. There is no halftime in baseball, Mr. Wolf. We keep telling you games. Yeah, that's why we've had so many forfeits. Oh, suddenly somebody's a big baseball genius, huh? Using fancy three-syllable words like forfeit. That's only... Shut up! Let me tell you a story. There was this little dog, some kind of mongrel... He lived in Huntington Beach, California, and and every day he watched the surfers, and he wished he could be just like them. And one day a surfer fell off his board, and this little dog swam out, and, and he got on it. And there he was. He was surfing. And how do I know this? Because I saw it on YouTube. What were we talking about? Uh, baseball, Mr. Wolf. Oh, that's right. Uh, well, um... Try to go out there and um, run for a grand slam or something. I'm going to watch it one more time. Oh, that little dog is so cute. The rest of you, listen to this show. And now the mud hen of the Toledo proctologists, or maybe it's the other way around. Colin McEnroe. All right. Welcome to our baseball roundtable. We're very excited about this. Uh, It's the beginning of the World Series tonight at 8.07, I believe. Uh, Joining us, uh, he actually played the game. Doug Glanville is with us, former Major League player uh, who played for the Phillies, Cubs, and Rangers, currently an analyst and journalist with ESPN, the author of The Game From Where I Stand. Also joining us, Ginny Apple, former sports writer and columnist for the Los Angeles Times, the Hartford Current. She keeps trying to get out of sports journalism. I keep dragging her back. Uh, And Steve Metcalf, journalist, critic, arts consultant, and composer, writes the weekly Metcalf on Music blog for WNPR.org. Also the curator of the Richard P. Garmany Chamber Music Series at the Hart School. It sounds like I might have walked into the wrong show. Uh, Mr. Metcalf is a a longtime, diehard baseball fan, student of the game, and perhaps most significantly um, a guy who has rooted for the Mets since their inception. Since day Absolutely. one? Absolutely. I listened to game one on the radio. Do you remember anything about game one? 
Yeah, they lost, <laughs> and they and they lost the next nine games on en route to a one hundred and twenty loss season. And, and, the, no, and nothing about that dissuaded you. <laughs> Actually, on the contrary, they were. You know, it was a charming team. That, this was the team that included, of course, such uh, notables as Choo Choo Coleman and Hot Rod Keneal. And how could you say no to that? Mm. Um, Doug Glanville. Um, yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about this World Series. Um, we know it's the Mets. We know it's the Royals. What else do you think would be important? Like, you know, some NPR listeners they don't follow sports all that carefully. What do you want them to know as they tune in tonight? Well, I'd say the characteristics of these two teams. The New York Mets have what they call the young fireballers. Their pitchers are these young pitchers that have had you know phenomenal seasons, but also they throw exceptionally hard. And so they rack up the strikeouts. They have less dependence on the defense because they strike everybody out. And they're actually going up against the Kansas City Royals team that is one of the toughest teams to strike out. So you have a quite a yin-yang going here of the battle between the power pitchers and the guys that don't strike out. And the Royals were in the World Series last year, so they're, they're trying to, you know, they lost. So this time they're trying to pull it off. Now, by the way, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, we're live here on the air in the afternoon. Give us a call, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPRCollin. So, Ginny Apple, I, I'm the type of person who, if I don't have a particular rooting interest, any real reason to go for one team or another, I try to root for the underdog. And so these teams, in terms of sort of hard luckness, they're kind of evenly mashed, right? I mean, one of them won the World Series 30 years ago. The other one last won the World Series 29 years ago. Um, So who's the underdog? Like if I really like you know, character building things where, you know, the, the little guy triumphs, how do I pick between these two? I think it's it's close to a toss-up, uh, but the Mets have the X factor, which is Murphy. You know, it's hard to <laughs> describe why somebody all of a sudden becomes, you know, like a flaming rocket in the playoffs, whereas some other more formidable players like uh, um, uh, some big sluggers don't hit yeah. during the season. Uh, so I think the X factor is going to play here for a lot of people. I, I remember also, and you probably know this, we don't allow our sports people to be people. Mm-hmm. Like this might be the right. World Series, the biggest thing in your whole career. But what if you had a fight with your spouse that night? Or what if you have some pressing personal problem and you're having to go on the mound, you know, for the first game of the World Series? I remember Chris Everett told me when she lost at Wimbledon to Virginia Wade, she looked up in the in the press box and um, up in the players' box and saw Jimmy Connors come with his new girlfriend. And she didn't win hardly a point after that. And she said, people don't allow us to be human. So I think those factors, I think the X factor is going to be a big factor. The weather, even though it's for both sides, you know, hitting in cold and and maybe having rain delays probably affects the play. So I think this is pretty close to you can get to a toss-up. I like that thing about the human factor. I always think about that, Metcalf, when uh, particularly during March Madness where people will complain about the consistency of some player for Kentucky or something. And I'll be thinking, he's 19 years old. I, didn't, I barely knew who I was when I was 19 years old. I mean the notion that somebody – you know, that you could hold somebody like that to that kind of a standard. She's right. We don't let them be human. And by the same token, I mean I, I don't think it can be said enough – how uh, just amazing these these occasional postseason stories like Daniel Murphy are. I mean, Daniel Murphy, God bless him, is a 
at best a journeyman if he's even earned that uh, rank. You know, and here the, the guy has now homered in six consecutive games, and his streak is still active. I mean, he has a chance actually to tie or or uh, exceed the major league record, which is eight. And, you know, Daniel Murphy is not known as a home run hitter, much less a prodigious one. So, you know, these are the storylines that engage us so, as Mets fans. Yeah, so, and we'll, we'll come back to that whole Met, Met fan psychology. We'll be talking about the psychology of Met fans, and if you are one and have a theory about how that happened, 860-275-7266. So Doug Glanville, yeah, this is the story everybody's talking about. I think there are some other really interesting ones too. And And this is weird, right? I mean, this is a guy who just – you know, this year started to catch fire a little bit, hit with a little bit more power, a little bit more power during the regular season. And now it's he's just exploded. Do you have an, a working hypothesis about this? <laughs> he's unconscious is <laughs> what it is. Well, he, he's a good hitter. He, he definitely a left-handed bat that can you know, flirt with 300 at different times. Defense is really his huge weakness, but he's always found himself in the lineup by just, you know, being able to keep that strong you know, sort of batting consistency. So, you know, him having an impact, I don't think that's shocking. It's it's the way he's doing it, right? It's the power game where they, you know, they signed a guy like Joanna Sespin as they traded for him at the trade deadline. Lucas Duda, that's where the power comes from, from the Mets. It does not come from Daniel Murphy. So it, these are those great stories. And, you know, I played in the playoffs in 2003 and guys like, you know, Randall Simon, guys you don't expect all of a sudden have these moments. And, that's what's sort of fun about the postseason. You never know who's going to rise to the occasion. Well, you know, the, the, Ginny, the, you alluded to this before, but they're they're walking, intentionally walking Daniel Murphy <laughs> to get to Ioannis Cespedes, which seems insane. And part of the storyline is, and, and we'll be interested to hear Mr. Glanville on this too, but part of that storyline is a batting coach. You know, every once in a while, we don't talk about batting coaches all the time, but every once in a while, you know, whether it's Walt Riniak and Charlie Lau for a while became these almost kind of celebrity batting coaches for, for one period. And this time it's, it's a guy named Kevin Long, who uh, I think played most of his minor league career in the Royal system, ironically enough. But it's one of these things where an athlete has to trust somebody, right? Because if you're going to do this, you're probably going to go backwards. You're going to, this guy's going to come in and change your swing, change almost everything about your swing, how you move your your feet, where you hold your hands, when you bring your hands through. And the understanding is probably at first you're not going to hit as well as you have in the past, you know, and, but then maybe you're going to reap the rewards. We're actually seeing this happen. But I don't know about you, but I find it amazing that a major league player is, will allow himself to do something like that. Yeah, I think he – and Doug probably can speak to this, but I think he tr- did this as well with Granderson at one point in his career and, and it improved him for a while and then he went back down. I mean I think – Hitting kind of is cyclical, and I think it took a while from what I read to get Murphy, you know, on the page to get a new batting coach to change. I mean, it's like Tiger Woods changed his swing, and he hasn't really come back. You know, uh, Martina Navrat—I mean, uh, Chris Everett changed her swing, and Jimmy Connors changed his swing to be more competitive. They started coming to the net. So there have in history in sports been players who do this, but it is a risk because you're going to go through some rough times to begin with in the early season. I, I Don't you agree, Doug? Or? I'll tell you what. It's scary. It's scary to give your swing over to a coach, mm-hmm. uh, wholly at least. It's um, My example is I came up through the Cubs system, and in AAA, I was sitting pretty well up until then, you know, but not quite up to expectation. And I used to hit you know, with my arm almost over my eyes. I had like a, a little Batman thing going on here. <laughs> and, uh, not to speak of the it, Dark Knight. Or Dracula, <laughs> speaking of which, right? <laughs> and I faced this guy – 
named Greg Olson, who was a closer for the Baltimore Orioles. And he was known as having the greatest curveball of all time. And he threw me a curveball that I didn't even see. I thought it like hit the cloud and came down into the strike zone. I had absolutely <laughs> no chance of hitting this ball at all. And it was a moment I said, either I am in the wrong profession or I need to figure out how to deal with this. And my hitting coach said, look, you have to change this whole Dracula stance you have and come up with a way – and he gave me what he called the basic major league stance so that even if I don't hit it, I can lay off it and not swing at it a couple of pitches and hope I can get the pitch I can handle. But I gave my swing over to him, and it was very weird for a couple of weeks until I finally got the rhythm. So at the major league level, you can compound that, how difficult it is to change your swing and, and trust. But Kevin Long has a great track record of being able to reach major league hitters and and give them great results. So you know that's, that's really his badge and, and why they trust him. You know, uh, we'll be probably talking a little bit more about Mets storylines than Royals storylines because we probably know the Mets storylines better. But uh, if you have some good Royals storylines, give us a call, 860-275-7266. I may only be talking about myself, 860-275-7266. But Mr. Metcalf, one of the other storylines we know, and you hear this more. I, I don't remember this. Uh, from the past, but you hear this more, particularly in recent seasons, about this idea of pitchers being on pitch counts or innings counts, amounts of games, uh, questions about pitchers even playing in the postseason, uh, if in fact they might be risking a recently reconstructed arm. This is one of the things we heard about this man, the Dark Knight, to whom we keep alluding, uh, Matt Harvey. Like, was he going to be able to go full out in the postseason? Tell, for people who don't know about this, first of all, kind of lay it out a little better than I just did. Well, I mean, first of all, you have uh, so many more pitchers pitching in the major leagues these days than used to be the case who have had the so-called Tommy John surgery, which, you know, by and large, uh, you know, has been a successful way for people to come back from uh, elbow injuries that maybe in a former day would have ended their careers. And, and of course, Matt Harvey uh, sat out all of last season recovering from his surgery and you know, I think the science is a little unclear on exactly what the right number of pitches the following season is. But, but uh, if nothing else, Matt Harvey's uh, agent Scott Boris feels he knows what the right number is, and so there's been a, a great deal of uh, scrutiny over how many pitches Matt's allowed to throw this this year, and which uh, I think, as all people who follow the game know, became a little bit controversial toward the toward the end of the season. Uh, although the, uh, Harvey tells us, at least he's saying publicly, that he, he feels like he's going to go however many more games he needs to, however many more pitches, however many more innings. So so we'll see. But I think in general, the the whole notion of pitch counts is something that, that uh, major league managers and trainers are a lot more conscious of than they were a generation ago. In fact, I, I don't even particularly remember that it was – an issue uh, 20, 25 years ago. You know, I mean, guys would throw 300 innings routinely and, you know, uh, some some teams had four-man rotations and so you'd go every fourth day and you'd you'd take the ball and, of course, in, in the old, old days, you'd, you'd more often than not go seven or eight innings uh, routinely, which is also not the case anymore. So I, I think it has changed the game fundamentally. And, you know, Jenny, there's almost kind of a class of clash of cultures, too. I mean, I think that, like, I grew up pretty much the same baseball players that, that Steve's talking about, where you just wouldn't hear that. I mean, even, 
even probably if their elbows hurt, you know, you wouldn't even hear that, that there was a sort of a macho thing. Of course, I'm going to go give me the ball. But now these guys are, first of all, they're much more highly compensated. They have a much keener idea of how long their careers can last. Uh, and, and and so those two things, in a way, they're kind of running into each other. I mean, I think for old-style baseball fans, it is kind of weird to say, what do you mean he might not pitch the postseason or he might drastically limit his innings in the postseason? I hate to always go to other sports, but I'm growing up in Texas, of course. You remember Tony Darsett, who played totally hurt and got the Cowboys to the, you know, to the Super Bowl. Um, I don't know if it's a different mentality, a different way of training, the science of baseball, the science of sports that says, you know, the human body at this level can only do this much and be this effective. If, you know, if we raise them tougher then, I don't think that's really it. I think that's this is another X factor, you know. Why does one person who's seemingly fit and, you know, made for the position, why can he go on forever and why can't the other? I mean, I, I think it's a question that baseball must struggle with in all sports. What do you think? Well, you know, it's the emergence of these analytics, the, the detail. I mean, basically you have financial analysts breaking down the game now to the level of such great detail about pitch counts, as you mentioned. Uh, it's, you've seen it in defense, how they shift players now. You know, nobody plays actually shortstop now. <laughs> they're, they're in right field. They're, so they're moving players to maximize, based off the data, how they can be most effective. So it's translated into the, the physical preparation. And the interesting thing and the tough thing about pitch count, as you mentioned, is, well, what kind of pitches are you throwing? Is it a curveball? Is it a fastball? That dictates how much more or less stress there, are, there, there is on this particular arm. So they're not exactly sure. And they're, they're navigating through the interest of the player, the agent, the security. They're taking out insurance policies. So this is sort of change certain things. And of course, culturally, you think back, wait a minute, why would you n- never, like, how can you imagine shortening what you need to do in a World Series? This is what you're trying to do. This is what it's all about. And, but that's, that's where it's gone to. And uh, we'll see if this continues, but there's certainly concerns because a guy like Steven Strasburg with the Washington Nationals was shut down before the playoffs last uh, a couple years ago, which is remarkable, but literally did not pitch. So you know, that's what we're running into. And some of it, I think, is a, is a change in the understanding of who these guys are, too. You know, I mean, I was my first team that I rooted for was the 67 Red Sox, you know, where Jim Lonborg was an employee, you know. I mean, whereas I think these guys are their they're highly paid independent contractors in a way who, you know, who really are smart enough to look out for themselves, too. I, I'm not sure. The, I don't know. The, well, I was just going to say that I think the Mets uh, are maybe especially sensitive to this point because, as you guys all know, it was, what, three seasons ago where their ace, Johan Santana, was pitching a no-hitter. Uh, at at the time, the Mets had not ever had a no-hitter in their entire history. And, uh, you know, it got to be the sixth, seventh inning, and, and, and Santana was up well over 100 pitches, and there was a real... I think there was a real sort of uh, anxiety in the dugout over well wh- what are we going to do here are we going to are we going to yank this guy because he had had the surgery and a history of arm trouble or you know on the other hand he's got a no-hitter going so they left him in and indeed he pitched a no-hitter uh, the first uh, and still only no-hitter in the club uh, history um but he was never the same again in fact in fact uh, it, it that one game essentially ended Johan Santana's Career, so I mean, there's there's a heightened, uh, I think, sensitivity to this point on this on this particular club. 
All right. We're going to take a quick break here. When we're going to come back, we, we do need to talk about the psychology of the Met fan, uh, Josh McDum. Uh, feel free to call back 860-275-7266. We'll be talking also about some of the innovations in baseball, whether or not they're working on baseball's behalf or not. Because it's World Series time. Time for the best of the best to shine. All right, we're getting you ready for the World Series. You can give us a call if you have a question or a comment, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. With us uh, is a former Major League player, Doug Glanville, uh, now a journalist and analyst with ESPN uh, and former Hartford Current uh, columnist, Ginny Apple, and a longtime Mets fan, Steve Metcalf, uh, also a music journalist, particularly with us. Uh, all right, so uh, as I say, 860-275-7266. If you have questions or comments, if you can want to tweet at us, you can at WNPR Colin. Metcalf, I'm going to turn to you now because there is there is this question of like wh- why is somebody a Mets fan? Is there a particular psychology? It seems like uh, for me, affiliation was non-elective. You know, when I, I grew up, my grandmother had like a votive statue of Ted Williams <laughs> uh, that sat on the TV. I mean, there was sort of no question about what I was going to do. But um, Well, but, I hate to tell you, but because uh, this certainly dates me, but um, in, in our household, it was kind of the same with the Mets because we actually grew up in upstate New York uh, and our family uh, were uh, Brooklyn, Dodger, Brooklyn Dodger fans. And uh, so when the Dodgers moved to California after the 57 season, uh, there, there was a there, I mean, there was no votive statue of Duke Snyder or anything, but uh, <laughs> there, there was sort of a collective mourning that lasted until uh, an April day in 1962 when the Mets were born. And there was just, you know, there was no question that uh, this would now be the team for all of us and especially for my brother and me. And, and uh you know, it was preordained that we would, of course, be Mets fans, as uh, as indeed we were. So, so we have a similar storyline. Although, you know, Ginny, the Mets. I mean, actually, we all worked at the same newspaper for a while, and um, the Hartford Current Sports Department often. <laughs> <laughs> to the incredible irritation of Steve Metcalf, um, would play the Yankee results and the Red Sox results on the cover of the sports section. And for some reason or other, the Mets results would be inside the sports section, although— In a so, wire story. In a wire story, maybe yeah, not, not a fi- staff writer assigned to the game. So here in Connecticut, which is like this contested territory, it's always described as a contested territory between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And then, you know, I mean, Metcalf would be stomping around the city room yelling about the fact that— where were his Mets? So what is, what's that all about? It was always kind of infuriating to me being a person from the Southwest that, you know, there were these allegiances I was, uh, that, you know, UConn can never do any wrong. There was no criticism of them in that day. Same with Red Sox and Yankees. And the Mets were kind of shuffled aside. Um, I, I was reading uh, there was a bunch of Mets jokes like uh, Texas Aggies jokes. And one of, the Met, one of the jokes was, what's the difference between dirt and the New York Mets? Nothing. They both always get swept. So I think the Mets were were the perennial uh, people that were that. that were pounded and knocked down, kind of like the clown blow up thing that you hit as a kid. And I think these the mentality of these people, and I love them. They were my colleagues, but they were fans as well. Uh, I tried to take very seriously being objective, and sometimes I'd be made fun of. But even today, 
if Oklahoma, which is where I went to college, even though I lived in Texas, grew up in Texas, if they lose, I don't like bleed or cry. You know, it's just another game. I like to look for the good play in the sport. But I think some people really bleed their colors here. By the way, Colin, I don't think you know this, and Ginny, I'm sure you don't know this, but I just want to say for the listeners of WNPR, I actually did one year when Mike Waller was still the publisher of the current offer, but I put a serious proposal on the table to be the guy who would go down and cover the home games for the Mets at Shea, and then uh, and then the rest of the time be the classical music critic. And I and I, <laughs> I put that offer on the table, and uh, and you then know, it sat. And I think Mike considered it, you know. For, for an afternoon, but uh, but I put it forward. How much does this seep into the players on teams, the psychology of the fans, the reputation the team has, the struggles, the history of the team? I mean, if you're playing for a team, what you've got really is the season in front of you, the game in front of you, the week in front of you. Do players think that much about sort of the historic nature of their teams? To a, to a degree. I mean, well, I played for the Chicago Cubs, so that sort of sums it all up, right? I mean, the curses and the goats and all these things that prevented their success over the last 100-plus years. Uh, you, you definitely felt it. And everywhere I played, I felt there was a culture to each city, each team, each stadium. There was something unique about the Padres fans versus the Braves fans. The Braves, as, playing as a visitor— with the Phillies, they'd always say, "And let's give a warm Atlanta welcome to the Philadelphia Phillies." You know, I <laughs> was like, the, "They were very southern." Golf clap, everything's great. So <laughs> you had that, and then you go to New York or San Francisco or Oakland, different planets. So the players do take on somewhat of those personalities. But then there's also the the excitement of rewriting history. You know, if you're a Cub right now, and they, you know they had a great season. You want to be able to chart your own course and sort of change, and that's sort of exciting to a player. So there is a sort of juxtaposition, and I, you know the players, I find it as very motivating in some level. And certainly if you're a team with the Yankees have won so many championships, that's different versus the Mets who are trying to get back on the scoreboard here. But you know, I, love, I love both these teams for those reasons. They have a real an opportunity over the last three decades to get a win and, and really change directions for their organization. Um, I want to talk also, uh, we're going to talk about sort of, the, the, we've alluded to all the sports metrics. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about them if we have time. But to me, uh, as maybe not the student of the game that Steve is and not a sports journalist like Ginny or certainly not a former player like Doug, one of the things that I look for is the personality of a team. And um, and, and one of the, I mean, I, I, I know there are all these other metrics and you can read 538 and all these other sites and find out just by the numbers what's going to happen. Uh, except I don't really believe that. And one thing that I did notice about the Mets this year, and I guess it's a little bit true about the Royals too, I, I, I think teams do better when there's at least somebody in the clubhouse, a few people in the clubhouse um, kind of lobbying for a little bit of looseness. And when I, so I sort of tuned into the Mets kind of late in the season. It was like even just little things. Like I saw uh, Jason DeGrom come out for a press conference with Daniel Murphy. Daniel Murphy seems like a pretty uptight guy and sort of one of these traditionally stolid men of few words. Uh, and, and DeGrom kind of has a wild look about him. And they, he sat down next to Murphy and he clearly realized that the chairs were adjustable. And he just reached over to Murphy's chair and flipped it so that Murphy <laughs> shot down about five inches. And then he just smiled and started talking. And about five minutes later, Daniel Murphy said, that's really messed up, Jake. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like having that, you know, having, I mean, ha- having rooted for several Red Sox teams that had that sort of gang of idiots um, 
uh, a vibe to it. it I, to me, that's a sign that a team's got a better chance. I don't know. Well, I'd, I'd eventually like to hear uh, Doug address this, but uh, I, I will say as a fan and especially as a Mets fan, you know, what's, what's interesting about uh, some teams, and I would say this current Mets team as an example, is that there are no obvious superstars. I mean, Cespedes is probably, uh, who was a midseason acquisition, is probably the closest thing that this Mets team has to, to that. But, I mean, by and large, this is a team of, you know, uh, competent sort of middle uh, career guys like Granderson, but also a lot of young guys like like everybody on their starting pitching staff and most of their infield. So I'm, except for David Wright, who's, I mean, I guess arguably a star, but not a, not a, uh, I don't know, a sort of mega star in the sense that uh, some other people are. So, so I think it's, it's always entertaining for us as fans when there's a team of, you know, just kind of regular players who go out and one, one night it's one guy who picks it up and one night it's the next guy. And there's no, you know, there's obvious. There's there's no obvious like David Ortiz kind of figure to to carry the thing. I don't know if if uh, Doug, I'm I'm uh, just speaking as a fan here, but uh, that's my impression. Well, you know, you think of it this way: it's a long season. We were just talking about you know you're going to be cutting the Thanksgiving turkey, and the World Series is still going. So, you know, it, it's a long year, and you need different guys at different times to carry the club. You need different guys to bring a different spirit as uh, to what you need to sort of inject some sort of energy. And, you know, it took all types. You know, in, in my career, I certainly played with, you know, mentioned you know, Daniel Murphy and DeGrom. You know, you're on opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, the dark knight who's, you know, loves to party, loves to do his thing. You have all these personalities. And when you have a mutual respect for the job and the task at hand, it works. And, and people kind of feed off of that as fans to see like, wow, all these personalities. And you know, I played with Sammy Sosa with all the gestures. And, <laughs> you know, I had Scott Rowland who just wanted to go to work and get his lunch pail and go home and be a Hall of Famer. You know, you just had those personalities. So it's, it's, it's part of the beauty of baseball. I think it's part of what could make it feel so accessible to fans to feel like, hey, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not seven feet tall. I'm not 350 pounds. But so I could do that. It's, a, it's achievable and it's a daily effort which I think makes it very uh, relatable. But Yeah, go ahead. Doug, I always thought, too, that um, I always liked the postseason in any pro sport because I felt that's the time when they took off their business suits and this really meant something. You know, Not that the games all year didn't mean something, but that, that a pro could actually get back down to their roots and their level as an athlete and, and really play the game and be focused because this is the heart of the matter. And, and I think teams may respond to that a little better. I mean, did you feel that when it came to the playoffs? Well, that's a great point. It's just about, like you mentioned, the pitch pitch counts and contracts and all these. But then it's like, hey, this is this is what you play for, right? This is it, to get the ring, the, the immortal ring. So I, I do think a lot of things melt off and a lot of personality issues kind of, wait a minute, we're right here. Because I played with a lot of guys that, you know, when you have strong personality, some people clash. But all of a sudden you saw this potential and this common goal. And I, I think it does sort of uh, – you see a little bit more of that collective priority, which really is the beautiful part of the game. But I think the, the, the point that you make about it being just a long season – and a lot of times for me, if I look into the dugout of a, t- a team and they're really having fun, it means one of two things. Either the manager's completely lost control and there's no <laughs> discipline there and they're sneaking right. off to have hot dogs and uh, beers in the clubhouse or they're really having fun and they're loose enough 
to win. You know, that they're not going to beat themselves. They're not going to be afraid of making mistakes. And I do notice on this team, I mean, I've read a couple of things, a couple of identical stories about these teams recently. One of them is about uh, Curtis Granderson and Lucas Duda uh, of the Mets, where Granderson has kind of noticed that Duda is another one of these uptight guys and ha- has been filming him and shooting pictures of him for Instagram and has started this account called I Follow Lucas or something. <laughs> and, and, you know, Duda sort of not entirely cool with it initially and, you know, the pictures of him falling, taking a nap or, you know, or eating a big cupcake or something. Right. And, and Granderson's going, no. And he, goes, he goes, what if my mother sees it? And this Granderson said, your mother will see it. She'll be happy. And he goes, look, you know, this is fun. Let's do this. And, and the exact same thing has been happening. I have to look up their names because I, I forgot. Salvador Perez is doing this to Lorenzo Cain. They're best friends at the, uh, on the Kansas City Royals. Perez is a much more flamboyant, colorful, relaxed kind of guy. Cain a little bit more uptight. So Perez has been doing the same thing. He's been he started an Instagram account and he'll do things like he'll, you know, try to wrestle Kane on a on a luggage conveyor thing, you know. And you can you watch I watched a few of the videos and Kane will be go, "Stop. What are you going to do that for? What are you doing?" You know. But you you it strikes me anyway that if you have that it, you know, it is a long season, and some guys are really very, very tightly wound too. I, I assume having somebody, some people like that around, does help. Yeah, I mean, you want to have fun, and people like you to see you're having fun, right? You know, you know, we're not lining up to go see like a, you know, your tonsils taken out. You know, nobody's going. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is great. Let's all go to the hospital and watch it. I mean, unless you're a medical student, so. You know, there's no question that you see the youth and the exuberance and the excitement of like playing a sport for a living, which was an absolute, absolute gift to be able to do. And sure, you expect the seriousness and that you're taking your job, your craft seriously, but you also want to make sure people are having fun. And it was great to play with guys that just kept it loose and kept you laughing. But you know, you also need those other guys. Lorenzo Cain's a great ball player. Salvador Perez is the guy. The post game interview is going to be, you know, <laughs> singing a song. So, and, and that is what we hope for. I think as fans, we we hope that that these guys down on the field are enjoying each other and enjoying the game, and that they're there. They're not just hired guns in the era of free agency. You know, kind of kind of leasing themselves out to the highest bidder, but rather, you know, that they really have some investment in in the team and the chemistry and and the brass ring and and the. Not only that, they're enjoying themselves. I mean, that, that's what we secretly hope is the case. Let's talk. Uh, spend a little bit of time talking about um, some of the innovations and how the fans are reacting to them. So now we do have video review of plays. Uh, we have measures being taken to speed up the game. Um, sometimes those things seem kind of in conflict with one another because it takes a while to do these video reviews. So it seems to me like the game is going to get longer when that happens. Um, and Jeannie, one thing that we've seen with the video reviews is that sometimes they detect things that would never be detected otherwise. I mean, the, the, this New York Times article that I read a few weeks ago or maybe a week ago about how sometimes the video review will show a base runner whose slide, he like for a fraction of a second, yeah. There's the tiniest amount of space. As a matter of fact, we have a, we have a clip for that, right? Um, yeah, Wolfie, do you have that clip? Here we go. There goes Gore. Throw down to third base. He is not in time. Now you see Hinch. A.J. Hinch is coming out right here yeah. for a review. This is what replay review has turned into. Valbuena kept a tag on Gore, and there's a possibility that his right foot slightly came off the base. This is what replay was meant for, but this is what it's become. I mean, he's going to be probably called out, and the Royals are going to go crazy right here, as they should. And we've got a decision here. Calls over time. That 
one of the fastest players in the game who had never been caught stealing. They get him on a replay review. All right, so Jeannie, we already know what Doug Glanville thinks about this. <laughs> um, uh, it seems like something that just isn't visible to the naked eye shouldn't be revealed this way. I don't. Is there another way of looking at it? I think I think it's whether you're a purist in the game or whether you want to go the way of the stats and everything, all the technical aspects. Because certainly, there's been probably World Series won and lost by a bad call, but it wasn't you know filmed. So I think there's people who really think that yes, this is the way we need to go because then we can be absolutely certain. You know, they touched the base, the bag. They you know made that touchdown with both feet in, or you leave it to. The way it was, you know, you just leave it to the moment of the call. I would never want to be an umpire or a referee, you know, those decisions are split second. But I can understand how people who play the game might not like the video replay. Well, you know, it's opened up. This is partly a function of just social media, right? The reality that we live in this world where you have our, you know, smartphones and we're filming. And so you have this tool at your disposal Everybody in the stadium can see the guy came off. It's very hard as an umpire to say, no, I'm holding it because my eye said they're, they're not going for that anymore. And so that's the, the challenge. And where do you apply this technology within a reasonable frame of time to keep the, ball, the game moving along, which certainly has its critics in terms of its, its speed? Now, my issue with the stolen base is that, okay, I'm running and I'm going 22 miles an hour, by the way, 20 miles an hour into a base. I'm sliding. There's incidental contact because that's what happens. And micros inch, you're off the base. They see it in super, super, hyper, super slow-mo, and you're called out. I think that's really not the point of instant replay. I believe they'll go back and look at that and say, you know what? With contact, we're just going to allow you to have the base. Now, if you overslide it with nothing happening, that's on you. Now, one thing I do have confidence in is the commissioner, uh, Rob Manfred, does go back to the table. He's willing to listen and say, you know what? This isn't quite right. This is one of those things I believe he'll he'll adapt, and if they continue to do that, it could it could be more of an asset, and I think it will ultimately be more of an asset. But it's growing pains, and they've accepted that they're going to have to adjust on the fly a little bit. It seems like he's threading the needle very nicely here. I mean, we saw we saw a perfect game negated by what everybody knew was a bad call uh, a, a few years ago. I mean, you you want to you want that kind of justice, right? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I was a little skeptical when it was announced, and and I must say, I, I think they can figure out a little better way to do this than to have two umpires jog over to the visiting dugout and put headphones on and wait for whatever it is the. DSL uh, dial-up to connect. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they're doing because sometimes great and powerful eyes. It's really yeah, I mean, it's like two and a half minutes to to see something that everybody in the stands already knows. So I, I like to think that they'll they'll speed the the process itself up. But I, I I have to say, in general, I'm surprised by how much you know. It's how it's weird how how quickly you get used to it. You know, it's like when when instant replay started uh, just on on network coverage. You would then go to the ball game and and you'd be looking around for the instant replay because you you just became so conditioned to to having that and I feel uh, I almost hate to say this but I feel the same way about that little grid that shows the balls and strikes. Oh yeah, uh, in I the, want that grid in the yeah. strike zone. I want that now and I like um, the grid. Right. Yeah. And 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 it's really it's really uh, instructive even for a longtime fan and and observer how uh, our our understanding of the strike zone at least on television, wasn't really all that accurate. You know, I mean, a lot of pitches that you would have said, hey, that was, 
That yeah. caught the corner, and, and the grid show, it, assuming the grid is accurate, uh, the grid shows, no, no, it, it was clearly outside. So I think it's been helpful to the understanding of the game. All right, we'll take a little break here. We're running out of time, which means we're having a good time. Uh, <laughs> feel free to call in, 860-275-7266. We'll be back after this. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, who appeared in the intro, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Turk Wendell. For show pages, articles, and video proof that the Faith Middleton Show staff doctored the ball with an adobo ponzu reduction that's very flavor-forward without overwhelming the sea trout, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, a show about Chinese medicine. And now... Back to Colin. And back to our conversation about baseball and the World Series uh, as we get ready for tonight's opening game with us, Doug Glanville from ESPN, also a former Major League player player uh, with the Phillies, Cubs, and Rangers. Uh, Steve Metcalf, a former player with the Schenectady. What were the Schenectady? Uh, no, this was the Niskayuna Silver Warriors. <laughs> Sorry about What's that. wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ginny Apple, a former uh, sports writer uh, and columnist for the Hartford Current. Did you did you, do, did you play with a particular team? And then, I mean, I, I you, played. I was All American Oklahoma in basketball and tennis. There you go. All right. Awesome. Um, all right. So I'm obviously the least athletically accomplished person here by a long shot. Um, so I want to actually we want to spend a little bit of time towards the end here talking about also some of the unwritten rules about baseball and also kind of the issues of style in baseball. And, and to set this up, uh, we are going to play just a, a few seconds of um, an editorial. I guess you call it an editorial or a column or something that uh, Chris Rock did uh, on uh, Real Sports on HBO. Baseball doesn't just have rules from another time. It has an old-fashioned code, too. When you score in football or basketball, the players celebrate. Good times, come on! But when you score in baseball, the code says, you better not look too happy about it, or else a baseball will go whizzing by your head. All right, so, and this is a um, part of a, a longer editorial, seven-minute uh, piece by Rock, in particular about the fact that um, African American participation in baseball is is sinking from like uh, almost twenty percent uh, in the of the major league rosters to about eight percent now. And one assumes one of the points that he makes is one assumes that's also happening and happening in the fan base too, because uh, people you know want to be able to talk about players that they can identify with. They want to watch players that they can identify, and that baseball's losing some of that. So I mean, Doug, I'm going to start with you. I mean, obviously that's got to be a concern, right? That just that. The notion that a group that represented some of the greatest players who ever played baseball are just partic- is participating at a lower level. Well, it's also shifted. That's that's the other factor of the opening up of these markets internationally. Free agency, you know, sort of Latin America is highly represented in baseball. So it's also a, a shift. And that, and with that shift, part of what Chris Rock was talking about is like this cultural expectation. You know, the sort of old school. Way you, things have been done in the past versus now, you have guys like Yasiel Puig and the Dodgers, you know, flipping the bat and and uh, and even I, you know, I talked to uh, there's a player Young Ho Gong who's with the Pirates, and if you watch his video from Korea, he, I mean, he hit home runs and he flipped the bat. He's basically going to hit someone five rows up on his bat flip, but I asked him about it and he said, no, I don't, I don't do that here. So you know, it's just a very different uh, culture. So yes, the 
uh, when I played, I believe it was eight percent African American participation versus you know, like you said, in the seventies up in the twenties. And uh, but I also think that's also shifted <laughs> to much more Latin American uh, participation. And as a result, you know, the game is is very different. And so, but uh, let's talk a little bit about those um, kind of those unwritten rules. And yeah, in Rock's video, he he talks about South Korean baseball, where he says bat flipping is kind of an art. You know, he shows all these uh, kind of very demonstrative things going on. And there there is there's this old code in baseball that says you just you cannot do stuff like that. But you sort of wonder how long those rules will stay in place if the culture of the game changes the way Doug's talking. Well, again, just as a fan, you can already see that they've changed quite a lot over the last few seasons, and I think um, that'll continue. I mean, it, it has to continue, I think, just because there, there's a new generation of players and there's a new set of expectations. Every every sport has its code uh, in terms of the behavior on the field, and and this is one that's that's obviously evolving. I, I mean, I think if. Um, I, I still think, and Doug, please jump in here. It, it, it strikes me that there's still a difference between showing up the other guy and simply exulting in your own, you know, uh, achievement. I mean, in other words, if you if you if you hit a home run and then glare at the other pitcher, that that still is not going to work. You know, right. if you if you if you toss. If you, I mean, speaking of the Mets, I remember Willie Montanez oh, yes. was briefly a Met, uh, uh, mercifully briefly, actually. But <laughs> you know, Willie was the first guy that I can recall who who had a little style to his home run trot, where he where he did a full circle right. pirouette on his way down the first baseline, and and uh, frequently Willie would find himself uh, eating some dirt the next time up uh, as a result. And I I don't think that kind of stuff is. Uh, is quite as strictly enforced as it used to be, and and it obviously is is evolving, and it and it sort of has to. Yeah, I mean, there's a line, you know, that it's and it's unwritten, as you mentioned, Colin. It's uh, it's sometimes blurry, but there's no doubt there's a difference between my hitting a home run, pointing to the pitcher with the bat, doing a somersault around the bases, and <laughs> sliding into home versus you know, okay, I had a great moment, let me flip the bat. I mean, and it's partly because you know, baseball is a game of preservation, right? Very historic. Loves its numbers, its history. I think with that becomes this fear of change. It's a slow ocean liner doing a U-turn kind of change in baseball. And that that has a lot of assets, but the drawbacks is allowing in new culture, new ideas, ideologies, and approaches in uh, which without the tension that you can see, which is spilled out a lot recently into the, the sort of cultural divides. Although but, I, I go go ahead. Well, I just want to say that. Uh, th- there's an interesting little variation on this point, which is that uh, once or twice I've seen. In fact, I'm sorry to say, Colin. Once it was a Boston Red Sox player uh, stand at the plate and admire a home run shot, and even flip the bat away, only to find that, gee, the ball didn't quite leave the park, and uh, so it was a long single. The um, uh, although one quick point is the point that Rock made is that baseball's kind of almost curatorial love of its past kind of works against it in other ways. This is the first World Series where neither team has a segregated past. These are both expansion teams. So, uh, you know, I mean, that curatorial old-timey, old-timer uniform, all that kind of stuff, the, that love of the baseball's past is also a reminder of what a white game Major League Baseball was for a long time. That's not a great thing. The one thing, Jeannie, that I 
would say is that I also think that things slices both ways, kind of almost to Steve's point. And since you do cross-platform sports, I'll do it too. Like I used to really hate Charles Barkley until he played for a team that I liked. And then I loved Charles Barkley, right? So bat flipping and things like that, things like that, either you think, well, yeah, stylistically, that's kind of cool that Bautista does that. Uh, if you have to be, happen to be rooting for his team, then like sometimes you like even the players who, who don't wear their – a couple of relief pitchers who don't wear their – their caps quite straight. If they're pitching against my team, I'm like really mad about that. Yeah, I don't, like the, I I don't think, like the flat brim thing. Oof. I think we get we are very rooted in our fandom, and you know you tolerate things on your team that you wouldn't tolerate on others. I you know I I don't like it when teams are up by 50 points and their fans are screaming at the referees. You know, <laughs> it's like you're up by 50 <laughs> points. Why are you doing this? Point spread. And and and, <laughs> and teams that are fans that don't you know, cheer for their team when they're down because a lot of teams in all sports come back from really low down with not much time. And I never understood that. And I noticed that a little more up here than than where I grew up. But I think it's that, like that down where I grew up too now. And I don't right. understand that. We have just enough time for your predictions. Uh, winner and number of games. Mets, Metcalf, in, you go Mets in five. All right. Oh, he's a true <laughs> fan, isn't he? I would say Mets in seven. Oh, all right. Wow. So I have to go against all you guys, unfortunately. So I'm going Royals in six. I know, Mets fans, you can tweet me. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I think they're, um, the fact that the Royals are a great contact team is going to be tough for the Mets. All right. Thanks very much to Doug Glanville, Ginny Apple, and Steve Metcalf. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a show about Chinese medicine. Rusty again is a Met. And the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball. Like Reggie Quees in bed. We're talking baseball. and Gaylord Perry. Honey, I know you're really excited about game one. So at intermission, maybe we can have this casserole that I made. It's a... Uh... It's a foul ball. I don't think that's what... It's a strike. No, you don't... It's an offsides. That's not even... So what you're saying is it's a really crappy casserole? Yeah, it's a peanut butter and cracker jack and feta cheese casserole. It's pretty gross.